Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church. Can you believe next week is Easter? That's going to be great, huh? Yeah, I'm glad you're excited already. Let's practice. He is risen. All right, that is awesome to know that the tomb was empty. And uh, we're going to be celebrating, it's true, every week. Uh, but we're going to be celebrating it next week for our Easter services. I know several folks have been watching online are planning on coming back uh, next week. And so just so you all have a heads up, they're used to coming to whichever service you want to come to. We have three services. They're not all the same time as they currently are right now, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11. And you need tickets. And so get the tickets uh, so that we can maintain some social distancing and some of those types of things. And I will tell you, if you want to keep coming to 11, that'll be great. If you want to come at 8 a.m., that'll be great. Uh, we anticipate most people are going to want to come at 9.30. Um, so since you're believers, don't do that. Um, we would love for you to still be at church, though, and uh, we'll celebrate uh, together. Today is what Christians have traditionally called Palm Sunday. Kind of a weird name. I remember coming to church and being like, why in the world? Palm Sunday, what does that mean? And uh, the reason why we call it Palm Sunday, it's always the Sunday before Easter Sunday, and what we're celebrating is something that happened in the Bible. And next week, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in John chapter 11, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so, what happens in that passage, and if you don't want to like cover your ears for the next minute or two, if you don't want to spoiler for next week's sermon, but what happens in that passage is Jesus has a friend who's been in the tomb for four days. His name's Lazarus. And Jesus goes to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. Here's the spoiler. He comes out (laughs) because Jesus has power over life and death. Amen? Amen. And then after that, here's the, the wild part, like the unbelievable part of what happens is the Bible says that many of the Jews believed in him. Does that scratch your head? Like, many? How does everyone not believe at that moment? The guy's been dead for four days. He comes walking out of the… He was wrapped in grave clothes, so I don't know what his walk was like, but he comes walking out of the tomb alive, and it doesn't say, and everyone believed in him. It says that many believed in him, because here's why. Maybe you've heard it said before that seeing is believing. Uh, If you've been told that, you've been lied to. Seeing is not believing. Believing is believing. Belief is not an issue of eyesight. Belief is a heart issue. And so they saw this, but many believed, and some did not. And the ones who did not, they went to the religious leaders, and they told the religious leaders what Jesus had done. And you know what they say? They say, we've got to kill this guy, because otherwise everybody's going to believe in him. We don't want that, right? So everybody's going to believe in him, and and we'll get into this next week. And they'd lose their power and their position. And so they didn't want Jesus changing their lives. A lot of people are, are comfortable with their lives the way they are. And so we talk about connecting people to Jesus for life change. They don't want their life to change. Jesus will change your life if he becomes part of your life. And they didn't want that. And so they plan to kill Jesus, and then Jesus goes away, knowing they're planning on killing him. And people start talking. Is he going to come for the Passover? That's what's about to happen uh, for them in Israel at that time, is the Passover feast. A big deal, if you know the Old Testament. It's the salvation moment of the Old Testament, is that God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites come walking out of 400 years of bondage, and what had just happened is he passed over the homes of those who put blood on the doorpost. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus, by the way, and he didn't kill, God didn't kill the firstborn of those families. It's a foreshadowing that he's going to give his only son, Jesus Christ, to shed his blood so that you can be saved. He saved those kids, the blood that was on the doorpost, from the firstborn. He has his firstborn, his only born son, die for you so you can be saved. It's a picture. They're going to celebrate that, and they're wondering if Jesus is going to show up. 
And so what happens is Jesus sends two of his buddies to go get a donkey that he can come riding into town. It's a prophecy that that would happen. If you've ever read that story, it's pretty funny because he says to his two buddies, hey, go get me a donkey. If they ask why you're taking their donkey, just say the Lord needs it. <laughs> like, think about that for a minute. Like, if somebody came to your house today and was taking your car keys and then you were getting mad at them, like, where are you going with my car? And they said, the Lord needs it. Are you going to be like, all right, see you later? <laughs> like, no. And so, like, can you imagine if Jesus like, hey, run up to the valet station, over, put it in modern day, run up to the valet station over there, grab some keys. Don't get the Porsche, grab the Toyota. You don't want him to think something. So grab the Toyota and they grab the key and the valet guy goes, where are you going with that car? The Lord needs it. All right. He comes back, brings the donkey. Jesus gets on the donkey, the disciples are walking in, he's riding on a donkey, and people start laying coats down in front of him. That's what you do for royalty. They're saying you're a king. And then they take not just coats, but they take palm branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. They take palm branches, they lay them down on the ground, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Now, many of us think that Hosanna is like the word hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Like it's just a praise that's giving to God. That's not what Hosanna means. Hosanna, for those of you who haven't studied Hebrew yet, Hosanna means, I beg you to save me. It's a cry for salvation. And so they're saying to God, to Jesus, that He is God, that He's the King, that you're the Lord Almighty, and I want you to save me. Put down the coat, Hosanna, I beg you to save me, the Lord Almighty, the Lord Most High. Incredible. And then we celebrate that as Christians because we know what happens on the next Sunday, that Jesus is risen. Amen. Amen. And we rightfully so should celebrate that. But in our celebration, what we oftentimes miss is the tragedy of Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday was tragic because the people that were crying out for the Lord to save them and were professing Him to be a king by putting their coats and their palm branches on the ground didn't want Jesus to be a personal Savior. They wanted Him to be a political Savior. They didn't want their soul to be restored. They wanted national restoration. And we know this is true because what ends up happening is that those same people, a few days later, the ones that were laying their coats on the ground and saying, Lord, save me, are standing outside of a palace where Pontius Pilate lives. And they cry, crucify him, talking about Jesus. Given the option of a known criminal or Jesus, they say, Jesus, crucify him. And here's the problem. Those people were around Jesus. They believed things about Jesus. They weren't connected to Jesus. We say as a church all the time, we exist to connect people to Jesus for life change. If you go out in the lobby, look back by the coffee. Well, we used to have coffee, pre-COVID coffee area that's out there. You'll see it says, we are passionate about connecting people to Jesus for life change. As a young lady in our church, impacted my life, doesn't even know it. Um, about three years ago, she came back to church. She had trusted Christ, had gotten baptized at our church, was serving, and kind of faded away. And uh, that happens from time to time with folks. And then when she came back, we were moving into this building about three years ago, she wrote me a letter. And she said in it, Pastor, I wanted to connect people to Jesus for life change, but I realized I couldn't connect other people to Jesus for life change unless I was connected to Jesus for life change. Now, that starts at the point of salvation, but it continues in your relationship with Him. And so, the question I want to ask you today is this, are you connected to Jesus for life change? And how do you know? If you've got your Bibles, we're going to look at that. It's the very thing that Jesus shares in John chapter 15. John chapter 15 comes right after uh, that triumphal entry. In fact, Jesus is in the last hours of His life. The time for his public ministry where crowds of thousands are gathering to be fed or to hear his teaching or to be healed, that's all done. 
He's had the Last Supper with his disciples. That's John chapter 13. He's washed their feet. He's told them that one of them's going to betray him. Judas leaves. And so in John chapter 15, it's not Jesus and the 12, it's Jesus and the 11. Judas is in the process of betraying Jesus at this very moment. He's told Peter he's going to deny him. Peter denies that, but it's still going to happen. He tells them there's going to be trouble in this world, but he says, take heart, I've overcome the world, but they're troubled. And so he gives them a private sermon. Can you imagine a private sermon? Can you imagine if somebody said to you, do you want to come hear Jesus preach? You'd probably go, right? And there's only going to be you and 10 other people? Pretty incredible. It's the last hours of his life. Look at what he says to them. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. All right, he's given his analogy. Now he's going to explain it. Verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Wait, is that true? Because we, I know atheists that do stuff. And you probably have neighbors that like stay married and work a job and mow their lawn and they do things. They don't have any interest in Jesus. Jesus says here, apart from me, you can do nothing. What he's talking about is eternally. That anything you do, you can do a bunch of busyness. You can do a bunch of things. In fact, you can do good things. But apart from me, if it's not coming as an overflow in your connection with me, it means nothing. It says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Number six, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, here's why he writes all this, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, everything he said so far in this analogy about love and about abiding and about fruit, these things I have spoken to you, that, here's the reason, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, that you could have complete joy. So what's he talking about here in this passage? Nikki even mentioned when she was leading worship uh, just a moment ago. She's grown up in church, but this kind of eluded her what this is even talking about, this analogy. Now, here's the key to understanding this passage. It's not, and I know some of you are scientists, see some of you out here, it's not like going into the lab with your white lab jacket and putting this passage under the microscope and let me tell you all the Greek grammar. That has its place. But if you want to understand this passage, you've got to enter into this moment. Think about the moment that's happening here. It's intense, it's important, it's intimate. Have you ever been with somebody right before they die? Some of you maybe have with parents, spouse, Unfortunately, some of you with kids, when you know someone's about to die, you don't waste anything. You're not worried about text messages. You're not worried about what's coming. You don't care what time it is. Like you're, you're every eye contact you can have, you want to you savor those moments. Every word that's spoken is important. Jesus has told them these are the final hours. This is literally hours before he's crucified on a cross. So this is intimate. And it's important, you think about the 11 guys that are here that he's with, these 11, everything hinges on whether they're obedient to the mission after this moment. And so this is like the last sermon that Jesus is going to have a private sermon he's giving to them. Can you, and maybe it's just because I'm a pastor and so I preach and so I think about this. Can you imagine if Jesus invited you to come speak to the disciples right before he left the earth? 
What would you speak on? Some of you look scared. <laughs> I'm thinking of my, like, what, if I didn't know this passage and Jesus were to say, hey, Scott, I want you to speak to Peter and John and all these guys, would you come speak to them? I th- what would I speak on? Courage, boldness, leadership. Like, I don't know. What would I, how to share their faith? Like, what would I speak on? I don't have to decide because Jesus tells right here. The important thing to talk about right here is how to know whether you're connected to him. And he gives various evidences throughout this passage. The first one, it's our first point, those of you who take notes, evidence number one is supernatural fruit. Evidence number one is supernatural fruit. And so picture the scene here that's happening. He's had the Last Supper with them, John chapter 13. He's washed their feet. He's told them about being disciples. He's promised the Holy Spirit. And he's told them about a bunch of bad stuff that's going to take place. And they're walking. They're walking from the Last Supper, probably through the Kidron Valley. They can probably glance over and see the temple. At that time, the temple gates would have been covered in gold, and one of the symbols was a national symbol, was grapes on a vine. It was the national symbol for Israel. Uh, Josephus, a first century historian, tells us what it looks like. He says this, and the quote will be on the screen. The gate opening into the building was, as I said, referring to context here, completely overlaid with gold, as was the whole wall around it. It had, moreover, above it those golden vines from which depended great clusters as tall as a man. When you read the Old Testament, there was a time when God was leading the people out of bondage to Egypt and into the promised land, and they sent 12 spies in, and they came back, so there's giants in the land, and they brought back a grape cluster. And the grape cluster was huge. And it became a symbol of the promised land, it became a symbol of the nation of Israel. And so what Jesus says here, he might allude to that gate, But regardless if he grabs live grapes or alludes to the gate, the Bible doesn't tell us, so we don't know for sure, he's referring to their national symbol. And what he says that we oftentimes miss here is incredibly controversial. In fact, some people have described it as explosive and radical, what he said here, because he doesn't say, come and be a part of the vineyard. He doesn't say, come and get into this soil. He doesn't say that he's part of the vine. He says, I am the true vine. In other words, if you want to be connected to God, there's only one way, and it's not by being part of a nation, which many of the Israelites believed it was an ethnic thing, it was a nationalistic thing. It's not being a part of a nation. Now, there are, here's the reality. There are some Christians in America that think that being a Christian is like equal to being American. And I love our country. I'm a patriot. Hopefully, you're patriotic. Hopefully, you love our country. But we have a problem in our country where we mix our faith and our nationalism together. They had that problem in Israel. Jesus is blowing that out of the water here. What he's saying to them is, it's not about being a part of the nation Israel, not come be a part of the soil, not come into the garden. He's saying, I am, and there's only one, not a vine, I am the true vine. It's like we talked about last week, Pastor Dave preached a great message. I'm the way, the truth, the life, no one gets to God except for through Jesus Christ. And here he's saying it is a different analogy, but he's blasting their nationalism. It'd be like if Jesus came here today and said to us, I am the stars and stripes, and you, and you think, well, what, what's, the prom, what, what's the promise of our country? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> we can't promise happiness, just the pursuit of it, by the way. But if Jesus, what does he say in the Bible? He says, I am the life. Like, you, can't have li- you don't get life from a constitution. You don't get life from a country. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I came that you could have life, that you could have it abundantly. I am the way, the truth, the life. Spiritually speaking, you are all dead apart from Jesus Christ. He's the true promise of life. Is what he'd be saying if he said, I am the stars and stripes. Liberty? Freedom? Really? From a country? From a document? The Bible says that everybody who sins is a slave to sin. Is there anybody here who doesn't sin? Raise your hand if you don't sin. 
I see hands. I'm a pastor. I'll tell you. I'll count that hand. Good. Everybody here knows that we're sinners. We're all sinners. The Bible says that we're all slaves to sin. How are you set free from that? He says, the truth will set you free. And he says, I am the truth. It's not through a policy. It's not through a government. It's through a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And, and happiness, a pursuit of happiness, that's why Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Come feast upon me. I am living water. Drink of me. You will never thirst again. He's saying, I am real, genuine satisfaction. In this passage, he says, you can, I want my joy, the joy he has, to be in you. And so what he's doing here, he's blasting a bunch of their paradigms about what it means to be connected to God. And he's saying, it's not about your nationalism. It's about a connection with me. And he gives a very, very self-explanatory analogy that we make really confusing. And so part of my job today is to not confuse you with what's a really simple analogy. The analogy is simply this. If you're connected to the vine, he's the vine, you're a branch, you're going to bear fruit. Called it supernatural fruit. We'll talk about what that means in just a second. But the problem for many of us when we hear a message like this is what Nikki alluded to when she was sharing her story. She said, a lot of times I'd think abiding is like part of my Christian checklist. What will happen with some of this sermon for some of you today is that I'll preach on bearing fruit, and you'll go, I need to go and bear more fruit. I need to go tell my neighbors about Jesus. I need to go adopt a kid. I need to feed some hungry people. I need to… all good stuff. But you're doing it as an addition to your life, not as an overflow from your life. See, the, the, the vine is where the life source is at, the branch is connect when it's connected to the vine, then the life source flows through and things that reflect the life source, fruit, come out of the vine. That's, the, that's all the analogy is about. The problem is for many of us, when we grow fruit, like the fruit that I've grown at my house, brought my vine here, the grapes on it. Some of you might be going like, why are they laughing? That's how grapes come. They're a Harris Teeter in a plastic bag like that. That's the only way I've ever seen them. Um, and I did not grow this vine, if anyone does not realize what I'm saying here. Um, this is actually a stick that came off in a storm in my yard, and my kids were using it like they were I don't know if they thought they were like going somewhere. I don't know. And so I grabbed this, and I got these at Harris Teeter. And the real problem with this is they're not attached. They're duct taped on there. Duct tape is great for sermon illustrations. Fix your car. Duct tape's amazing. Uh, but it's not a real attachment. You know, I wish, <laughs> saying that I grew this, I wish that I could be a pastor like some of those guys that say, you know, I wanted to know what it was like to raise sheep, so I bought four sheep. First of all, my HOA would kill me if I bought four sheep. Um, but second of all, uh, I've got four kids. I don't have time for sheep, all right? I don't have time. I'm trying to be a good husband. I don't have time to build a trellis in my backyard and grow grapes. And so I just duct taped them on here. And the problem is they're not really attached. And that's what happens for many of us in our Christian journey is that we, we hear a sermon on fruit, and we want to have fruit, and you're good people, like you're nice people, and most of you, a couple of you, uh, but most of you are good people. And, uh, and so you hear this, and you, you get your life branch. You're the branch, he says in here, and you go like, well, what's some good grapes? All right, well, I got to take care of people because, and you got to have duct tape up here just in case. You never know what's going to happen during a sermon. You got to have duct tape. Put it on. You're duct taping stuff to your life, which is basically adding things to your life. Go tell my neighbors. They don't, they don't, they still got their Christmas lights up. They're obviously not Christians. Gonna tell them about Jesus. Tape some duct tape on there. There you go. Oh, grapes falling everywhere. If I step on the grapes, I'm making wine up here. Sorry, Baptist. It might turn into uh, wine after a little while. You got the grapes here, and maybe I'll tell my neighbors about Jesus. I'll serve in the nursery next week, please, if you're gonna do this. If you're gonna do the wrong thing, at least do it and help our church. Uh, go serve in the nursery there and duct tape some more on there. 
And then you can keep, I could keep duct taping. I got lots of grapes up here, by the way. Um, and they keep falling off. They are going to have wine up here. Anyway, and then you, you look like this, and here's the reality. These are real grapes. That's not plastic grapes. These are good grapes. It's a real stick. You're a real person. It's real genuine. Things you do, they might be good things. Not bad to adopt a kid. Not bad to tell your neighbors about Jesus. Not bad to serve in the nursery. Not bad to give some money to the church. You can do all these things. But if it's not flowing from life in the vine, which this is dead stick. The stick, I could plant it in soil. I could rub grape seeds on it. You know, here, rub that on there. Nothing's going to happen. There's no life flowing through it. It's not attached to the vine. And so what happens for many of us is we get busy doing things for God and we might as well be duct taping fruit onto our lives because all we're doing is creating busyness and it's going to be cut off and it's going to be nothing, verse 6. Because it's not flowing from an overflow of connection to Jesus, the vine. And that's why we call this supernatural fruit. It's an evidence that you're connected. In fact, one of the things that helped me realize it was these evidences here was a quote by Warren Wearsby. Warren Wearsby is a Bible commentator. And uh, he said this. He's summarizing the whole passage. He says, how can we tell we are abiding in Christ? Is there a special feeling? No. But there are special evidences that appear, and they're unmistakably clear. For one, and then he just goes through this whole passage and outlines the things the passage actually says. He says, for one thing, when you're abiding in Christ, you produce fruit, verse 2. In fact, if you walk through the passage, you'll see it says there's no fruit, verse 2. There's fruit, verse 2, and it progresses, and there's more fruit, and there's much fruit. And so that God continues to work. Talk about pruning here. He says, also, you'll experience the Father's pruning so that you'll bear more fruit. Who, bears, who gets pruned? Sometimes we think whenever time something bad happens in our lives, we're being punished. God's not punishing you. If you're a follower of Jesus, this punishment was poured out on the cross. He might be pruning you so you can bear more fruit. In fact, you might be experiencing difficulty in life because of your obedience. There's fruit. He's going to produce more fruit, so now you can have much fruit. And you're like, I don't want any of that. Well, it's an overflow of being connected. It's evidences, he says here. The believer who is abiding in Christ has his prayers answered, experiences a deepening love for Christ and for other believers. He also experiences joy. We saw that in verse 11 when we read verse 11. So what is the fruit? Oh, we can go through the whole Bible. Fruits used as a common analogy in the Bible. A lot of people think Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 is the Old Testament background for this passage. We don't have time to read it, but if you want to look it up later at lunch or whatever, you can write down Isaiah 5, uh, verses 1 through 7, and it, the fruit that's mentioned there is justice and righteousness. Or you could go to the book of Romans, fruits mentioned multiple times in the book of Romans, and you could see that leading your neighbor to Christ would be considered fruit, according to Romans. And so is holiness, according to Romans. So is giving financially, according to Romans. Or maybe you're familiar with Paul's writings in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, he says, the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, gentleness. There's no law against these things. And he's talking about your character. But the question we have to ask when we're looking at this analogy that Jesus is giving is, what is he talking about here? Enter into this moment, in this moment, last hours of his life, important statement, what is he saying to these men right now, not the whole Bible, but at this moment? And you go back in this passage, and you see what he's talking about for evidences here. And you look at verses 9 and 10. He's talking about love. He's just told them after he washed their feet, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Do to each other what I've done for you. And then in verse, chapter 15, verse 9, he says this, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Okay, this is interesting because I told you that what many of you will be tempted to do is go and produce some fruit. (laughs) But if you walk through this passage, what you'll see is not one time are you commanded to produce fruit. Eight times in these verses, the word fruit is mentioned. Not one time are you commanded to bear fruit, produce fruit, do anything with fruit. You are commanded, though, to abide in Christ. Eleven times that's mentioned if you walk through verses 1 through 16 in John chapter 15. Eleven times you'll see abide. Sometimes your Bibles will translate it remain. Same thing. Abide, be connected to, remain in Christ. As you stay intimate with Him, another way to say remain or abide, as you stay connected to Him, as you stay intimate with Him, then He's the one who produces the fruit. And that's why we call it supernatural fruit. And so I could preach to you and say, go, and we'll talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Go be more patient. Go be more gentle. And that would be you duct taping fruit onto your life because you could do some self-help principles and be more, or at least not yell into a pillow. Like, don't get as mad. But if you came up to me and you said after the service, how do I, how do I share the gospel with my neighbor? How do I become more generous? How do I become more patient? How do I do these things? The best answer I could give you is this. Fall in love with Jesus. It's not five steps, two, or three easy ways. It's the more you love Jesus, the more connected to Jesus you're going to be. That's abiding in Him. And then the life of Jesus is going to flow through you and be reflected out of you. That's the fruit. But remember I told you it's supernatural fruit that we talked about here. Because even your neighbors can be patient that don't know Jesus. Even an atheist can be kind. So what are we talking about here? I was convicted reading a book a few years ago. Uh, The book's called Forgotten God. It's actually about the Holy Spirit, and it's written by a guy named Francis Chan. And in the book, he, he's just quoted that Galatians 5 passage. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, that whole list. And then he says this. He says, you may even have that list memorized, but look over those traits right now. Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, love, joy. Look over those right now and ask yourself if you possess each to a supernatural degree. Do you exhibit more kindness and faithfulness than the Mormons you know? Do you have more self-control than your Muslim friends? More peace than Buddhists? More joy than atheists? And maybe think about that. Think about real people before I even read this next line. If God truly lives in you, shouldn't you expect to be different from everyone else? As followers of Jesus, what it means to abide in Christ at the very first, the very most basic level, means to have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's how you get connected to the vine, is that you come to the realization that you are a sinner, and everyone in this room has already acknowledged that they're sinners, and I believe everyone online would probably acknowledge they're sinners. That means you need a Savior. You can't save yourself. You don't work off your bad works by doing other good works, which is a common belief. You can't clean yourself up enough. It's not about coming to church. It's not about taking communion. It's not about being married in a church. It's not about lots of things churches have lied to you and told you it's about. What Jesus says it's all about is being connected to Him. I am the way, the truth. Not I'm the way plus if you'd be a good boy and girl. No, it's I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. The Bible also says that at the cross, he became sin so you could be his righteousness. How does that happen? When you get connected to the vine. You place your trust in him. And so you want to abide in Christ. The first step is you have to place your faith in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. But once you've done that, you remain. You stay intimate with him. We're prone to drift. We're prone to wander. No, stay, stay, stay with it. It's not about all you have to do. It's not all performance. You're not proving anything. You don't owe him something. You're not paying back a debt to him. 
Just stay with Him, stay intimate with Him, and He will produce the fruit. What kind of fruit? We saw in the passage, verses 9 and 10, love, but a supernatural kind of love. So, as you're evaluating your life, you ask yourself, do I have that? And we see that in people sometimes. There was a tragedy this week in our country. I don't think I have to tell you as a news item. Most of you probably saw there was a shooting in Boulder, Colorado. There were 10 people that were killed in that shooting. It was at a grocery store. Uh, a guy went in there and um, shot 10 people. One of them was a guy named Eric Talley. I don't know if you've seen the names of the victims uh, as you've watched the news this week. For those of you who watch the news, I know some of you are not watching the news uh, during this season, and uh, I appreciate that about you, but just so you know, this happened. Eric Talley, I started to read about after I saw him on the news, investigating his life a little bit and the things that I could find, what different people would say about him. And whenever somebody dies, people say nice things. But sometimes you can find other stuff and stories. And what I found about Eric Talley is he's a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And he was a father of seven kids uh, between the ages of five and 18 years old. And so he left them all behind. He's 51 years old, a police officer. He actually was in the police chief's office two weeks earlier with one of his kids because he, I told you, he's got seven kids. And if you've got multiple kids, you know what this is like. Uh, one of the kids swallowed a quarter. Why? Kids. Like, I don't even know what to say. Kids. It's because they're kids. And then the other one, because dad had taught them CPR, saved that kid's life. And I thought, this is incredible. I'm trying to keep my kids from killing each other. They're saving each other. This is awesome when I'm reading this story. Then I thought, well, it reveals something about the guy. He's the kind of person that's always ready for an emergency. And I started reading more about him, and I realized that he wasn't always a police officer. In fact, he at one time had a job in IT. It was more, he paid him more money. It was more stable. And when his friend died in a drunk driving accident, he wanted to make a difference as a police officer, felt called into that. And so he left that job and went to be a police officer. His sister talked about him, um, what he was like growing up. She said, whenever I get in trouble, he'd take the blame. He was the kind of brother, he was my big brother, two years older, and whenever people were picking on me, he'd always be there to defend me, to stick up for me. And so, at 2.30 on Tuesday, when the call came in, there was a shooting at this grocery store. It was heroic, but it wasn't a surprise that he was the first one to respond. This 51-year-old police officer, who while there's a shooting taking place, runs into the shooting because he knows there's kids in there. He knows there's people in there that were just trying to buy groceries, and he was fatally shot and died. I can tell you that story, and he's a hero. And if you're a police officer, thank you for the fact that every day you put that uniform on, that could be you. But most of you aren't police officers. And so you can walk away from hearing a story like that and then think to yourself, well, if I had a chance to take a bullet, I'd take a bullet, but I'm probably not going to get that chance. So what do you do with that next week? Well, Here's the thing about Eric Talley as I looked at his life. It wasn't just about him taking a bullet. That was heroic, and I don't want to take anything away from that. But if you look at his life, start examining the evidence of his life, he'd been laying his life down continually as a fruit of the Spirit, as a follower of Christ, whether it was for his kids, whether it was for his wife, whether it was for his friends, whether it was for his coworkers, all the people that you come into contact with are talking about this guy's life are talking about sacrificial love. And so what do we do with that? Some of you here, different stages of life, different situations, you're going to leave this week. And I promise you, those of you who are married, to look out in the air and see some couples. Husbands, you might not get a chance to take a bullet for your wife this week. I hope you don't. I'm sure you probably would. I promise you'll get an opportunity to lay your life down for her this week. Because the love means to put someone else's best interest ahead of your own. I promise you'll get an opportunity to do that with her. And I believe you'll do it. But the question is why? Because some dude that you barely know stood up on a stage at your church and said you should, 
because you feel guilty, because it's what good guys do, or because it's an overflow of your being connected to Jesus Christ, and it naturally comes out of you, supernaturally really, but it's coming out of you, not as something you're producing, because you're not duct taping it on. It's not, it's not that. Like some of you are teenagers in here, and the most important thing to a teenager, for those of you who can't remember what it's like to be a teenager, is your reputation, what other people think about you. And so, some of you that are teenagers, I promise you, you're going to have an opportunity this week to care for somebody else that might not be cool, that might not be popular. And I believe that some of you will do that. The question is why? Is it because that's what some guy on stage told you to do? You feel guilty? That's what good people do? Or we're so twisted, some of us, not just teenagers, but we're so twisted we could go, well, because you know that that's what good people do and I want you to think highly of me so your idol is still what other people think of you. I'm going to go and be with this person that everybody knows nobody likes because I want you to think that I'm a good person. You're duct tape and fruit on. It's still a good thing. I mean, it's good to go be with them. It's good to do these things. It's not flowing out of your connection with Jesus Christ. All of you, married, not married, whether you're a teenager or 70 years, it doesn't matter. Co-workers, friends, you're going to be around people that you're going to have an opportunity this week to make them look bad so you look good or to put their needs in front of your own. You're going to have an opportunity to love this week. I promise it will happen. I believe most of you will do it. But why? Where does it come from? If it's an overflow of being connected to the vine, that's evidence of supernatural fruit and an evidence that you are connected to Jesus. If it's not, just so you know, it doesn't last. It's evidence number one. Second evidence is answered prayer. Uh, we'll call it supernatural prayer here. I don't think any answered prayer is not supernatural, but evidence number two is supernatural prayer. Look at verse seven. Evidence number one, supernatural fruit. Evidence number two, supernatural prayer. It says in verse seven, if, so this is conditional, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. So here we're talking about supernatural prayer. Something we all need to keep in mind about prayer is this. Prayer is primarily relational, not transactional. Now, there's prayer that is transactional. I'm not telling you it's wrong to pray that way. If you look at the Lord's Prayer, it says, give us this day our daily bread. That's a transaction. Will you give me something? I'm I'm praying to you. You give me something. That's a transaction. And in our relationships, we have transactional… My wife and I, we have conversations where I'm like, hey, can you go pick up the kids? Can, can I pick up some milk? Can you do this? We got this thing happening. We got… It's transactional conversations. If that's all my wife and I had, that's not much of a relationship. Relational conversation gets after the heart. And so, you ask questions about goals. You ask questions about fears. You talk about desires. You see, the rest of the Lord's Prayer says things like this, hallowed be your name. That's His goal, His glory. Your will on earth as it is in heaven. How do we know that? Because you know what the word will means? It means desire. God, we want your desire. How can we know his desires? Well, it says right here in verse 7, if you abide in me, it's connected to him, and your words, we know through his word what his will is. And your words abide, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. So this is not some divine like rub the lamp the right way and God's this cosmic genie and if you want something, then here's what you got to do. Abide in him and his words abide. All right, I'm going to memorize a verse and I'm going to hang out with you and then here's what I want you to do. That's viewing this transactionally. See, what the Bible says is delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So if you're abiding in him, you're delighting in him, um, that's not a transactional thing. And so, what some of us do when we see Psalm 37 is we go, okay, I know what the desires of my heart are. I want a new job. I want to get married. I want uh, the Porsche instead of the Toyota, like whatever the thing is, like whatever the stuff is. 
So I'm going to go delight in God so that He'll give me my stuff. That's transactional. What happens is if you actually delight in God, He changes your desires so that your desires become His desires, and what you're praying to Him and asking for is the thing that He, he wants. And so, of course, He's going to do the things that He desires. He's going to do them in your life as He transforms you, as you're connected to the vine, abiding in Him, delighting in Him. As you're delighting in Him, He's doing a work through you. The branch is just a vessel that the fruit comes out of. And part of the fruit is answered prayer that He's then glorified through, the passage says. And so, you, you look at this and you think to yourself, well, I pray different things. Well, sometimes I pray for things and God says no. Sometimes you're praying for things that wouldn't be good for you and you don't know it. Wait, I was praying for healing or I was praying for a spouse or I was praying for, to be a missionary or like things that you'd think are good, but He knows more. And he knows better. And the question is, do you trust Him? The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 7, He only gives good gifts. The analogy he gives there is actually pretty funny too. He says, you guys are evil fathers. So that's kind of a smack in the face, a backhanded compliment, by the way, fathers. He says, you guys are evil fathers, and you know how to give good gifts to your kids. He says, if your kid asks for a piece of fish, you don't give him a snake. If he asks for a piece of bread, you don't give him a stone. And so what he's saying is this, God only gives you good gifts. Some of you are asking for things you don't realize you're asking for a snake. And some of you can look back because you prayed that you'd marry somebody, and you didn't marry them, and they were a snake metaphorically. <laughs> and some of you, you look at, like, think about things you've prayed in the past that God said no to, and you, some of you can look back at some of those things with enough hindsight to be able to say, that would have been bad. He only gives good gifts. Well, why didn't He heal? Why didn't He do this thing? He's, I, don't, I don't know all the details. I don't know. I'm not Him. His ways are higher than my ways. But the question is, do I trust His character? Do I believe what He says, that He actually is good? And He says here, that if, if we're delighting in Him, He's going to give us what we desire. And so you see like these powerful prayers throughout the Bible. Like think about Elijah in the Bible. He prays that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years. Isn't that kind of a jerky thing to pray? Like in a, in a culture where everything's dependent upon farms, God, I pray that it doesn't rain for three and a half years. Hey, jerk, we all depend on that. Like it's our jobs. So, the guy who led me to Christ, when I told him I wouldn't trust Jesus, he said, I pray that you'll be miserable until you trust Christ or you, you turn your back on Him. And, and Mike, if you're watching, uh, I thought you were a jerk at the time. Uh, that's a pretty jerky thing to pray. But if you think about it from an eternal perspective, what's a few moments of misery if it changes your eternal destiny? And so he prays for three and a half years that it wouldn't rain. And then after that, he prays that it would rain and it does rain. And our tendency as followers of God is we go, all right, then I need to be like Elijah so that I can pray like Elijah so that I can get what I want. And you might not want to admit that, but that's how most of us feel about that. But here's what the Bible actually says about Elijah. It doesn't say that we need to be like him. It says that he's like us. It says in James chapter 5, in case you think I'm making that up, in James chapter 5 verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's just like us. It wasn't that Elijah was so special. He was just connected to the vine. So he's asking the very desires of our Father flowing through him that was a fruit of his connection with God, was coming out of him in his prayer life, and then God was answering those prayers, and he was being glorified through it. And you want a supernatural prayer I can give you right now that I promise you God will always answer? Is pray a prayer of surrender to him. I dare you. Say, I'll do whatever you want me to do, God, wherever you want me to go, whoever you want me to be, whatever you want from me, it's yours. My time, my talent, my money, like all of it's yours. My kids, I just open my hand on those things. God always answers that prayer. It's like Mary. She finds out she's going to have a child. She's never been with a man. She says, may it be to me as you have said. Whatever you want, God. 
supernatural prayers. That's an evidence. Supernatural prayers, supernatural fruit, and the the third one is the evidence, supernatural joy. Look at it in verse 11, John chapter 15. It says, these things, so everything he says in the first 10 verses, these things I've spoken to you, here's the reason, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We're all on a pursuit of joy. Everybody here wants joy. That's why it resonates. It's not, you don't have to be American, the pursuit of happiness. Every country, every person that's existed throughout human history wants joy. We seek it. Pleasure, joy, satisfaction, whatever word you want to use, we're all on a pursuit of that. And we go after different things for that. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, this passage is the answer to that. Some of you might want to spend some more time in this passage than just what I can share with you, but abiding in me, that's the key. Call it a secret, key, whatever you want to call it, that's what it takes. And it overflows into you loving with supernatural love. We didn't get to talk much about the pruning. God's going to prune you in the process. Your prayers being answered and your joy, look at what it says, may be full. I was reading this week about a guy who's a famous Christian, St. Augustine, St. Augustine, depending on if you're from Florida or not. And uh, there are different folks that have said different things about his life throughout the years. Uh, Many people don't talk about the early part of his life. Um, but they do talk about him being an influential Christian. In fact, some people have said the next to the apostles, he's the most influential Christian that's ever lived. What many people don't know about his life is that the early days were all debauchery. It was sexual immorality. He knew truth from his parents and specifically from his mom about God, but he settled for lesser things. And he's famous for a quote uh, that many of you may have heard, especially if you're tired and want a day off. It says that our hearts are restless till they find rest in him. The full quote actually goes like this, and we'll put it on the screen. A full quote is him talking about where that pleasure comes from. He says, you arouse us to delight in praising you, God, for you have made us for yourself. So that makes sense then that abiding in him is where the joy comes from. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. This spoken from a guy who knew the truth about God's word but kept settling for sexual immorality. His transformation happened suddenly and miraculously. He was actually in a, a garden in Italy, and he heard a boy going outside the gate that said, take and read. He took that as a command from God to go pick up his Bible. He picked up his Bible, and, and he opened it up, and I don't recommend this as like the way to read the Bible, and he's just like the first verse that came to his eyes, he read it was Romans chapter 13. Now remember, he's living mistresses, adultery, like all this stuff, and he reads this, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then he goes on to then teach us, and one of the greatest theological contributions he makes is teaching us that to love God means to enjoy God. To love God means to enjoy God. Because I bet I could ask many of you here today, do you love God? And a lot of people go, yeah, I mean, I think he's really important. He changed my life. I believe he's the way to get to heaven. But do you enjoy him? Do you delight in him? It says here, and we looked at it in verses 9 and 10, abide in my love and my Father's love will remain, you'll remain in my Father's love. And, and just as I remain in my Father's love by doing His commandments. And, and many of us, we think His commandments are like this duty, this thing that's going to rob us of joy. And we don't trust Him and it's the pathway to joy. It's like some of you are parents. Ever tell your kids to do something and they do it, but they didn't want to do it? 
Think about with my kids, somebody, go clean your room. I don't want to, you're so mean, like attacking my character because I told you to clean your room. Okay, and they get up there. Have you ever watched them before? They're like cleaning, throwing stuff into the drawer. Oh man, weeping and gnashing of teeth is happening in there. And then I'll walk in and I'll be like, oh, it looks good, but you need a vacuum. Whoa, round two of weeping and gnashing of teeth at that moment. And, and they do it and the room's clean when it's done and their friends come over and it's like, they have a clean room. Yeah, you should have seen it an hour ago, but whatever. But they did it out of duty, not delight. Many of us, that's why we're duct taping fruit onto the branch. It's duty. God did this thing for me, died for me on the cross. I better go do some stuff for him that I don't really want to do, but I'll do it. Oh, that's not, that's not the fruit. That's not the joy. That's not the delight. Did you see the kind of joy that Jesus talked about here? He didn't just talk about the best joy you can ever have, your best life now, some nonsense. Look what he says. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy, Jesus' joy, Jesus is hours away from going to the cross. He's talking about joy. In Hebrews it says that we should fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Wait, he could have joy on the cross? I don't know what you've been through in your life, but it's not the cross. It's not the wrath of God being poured on you for all of humanity's sins. And he had joy. Do you know what the joy was? The joy was you being connected to his Father through him. He is the true vine. It's through him that you will bear supernatural fruit. If you're connected, remain in him. And he'll prune you, and he'll answer your prayers, and you will experience joy. Are you connected to him? Let's pray. Some of you need to be connected to him for the first time. That's salvation. That means placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that at this very moment. If you're watching online or you're live in this room and God's convicted you of sin and separation from Him in your life and you want to experience Jesus, then you, we, everybody in this room's already said that you've sinned. It's not a big confession to say, I've sinned. You may need to confess sins to God. You can silently say that to Him. But acknowledge your sin. That means you need a Savior. And if you want Jesus Christ to be that Savior, meaning you believe that He died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that he defeated death, he can offer you life, and you want to receive that eternal life from him today, then ask him to be your Savior. Some of you here have trusted Christ as your Savior, but you don't have joy. You're not experiencing the joy of your salvation. You know, David talks about that in Psalm 51. After his sin with Bathsheba and his adultery, he says, restore to me, God, the joy of my salvation. Listen, your God's big enough to restore to you the joy of your salvation, regardless of what you've done, where you've been, or what nobody else knows about, and you may need to talk to him about that right now. Some of you need to repent. Some of you need to turn to him. Some of you have just drifted, like the lady I talked about at the beginning of my message. Faded. He's with open arms, wants you to come back into intimate relationship with him. He is inviting you today. Father, we come before you. Thankful that you are a good God. That your Holy Spirit moves and is present. And I pray that he would move in these, this room right now and move up and down the aisles and tap people on the shoulder and, and go into living rooms and kitchens and coffee shops and wherever people are watching right now, hospitals and prisons. And Father, our God, I just pray that your spirit would move and change lives, that people would pour out their heart to you right now and pray prayers of surrender, surrendering sin, surrendering self, surrendering time, surrendering talent, surrendering their lives to you. Father, will you move? We save, we revive and restore and renew and transform and change. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.